Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 151. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 151 you're listening to. Uh, My guest today is David Glasser. Yeah, David uh, Glasser owns Airshow Mastering in Colorado, and uh, he began his audio career with the uh, Boston Symphony, uh, followed by eight years of recording and production for NPR. And uh, Airshow Mastering is founded in 83, and uh, he shifted to full-time mastering around 1990, he had a studio in Springfield, Virginia at that point, but uh, he expanded the company to Boulder, Colorado in 97, and you know he grew Airshow into one of the largest mastering facilities in the country. So uh, I think it was in uh, uh, 2016 that he built a new facility where uh, he can, continues to do his work out of his, uh, out of his home, out behind his home. This is a building behind his home. We'll talk about that. Really enjoyed talking with him couple surprises within our interview, which uh, I think are kind of cool, which you'll hear about. Uh, we also talk about some interesting processes. So uh, have a listen, check it out, see what you think. David Glasser coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Grace Audio. Speaking of uh, uh, Colorado, uh, Grace or Grace Designs, I should say, they make, uh, you know, mic breeze and monitor controllers and they make they make audio gear. Anyways, long story short, I bought a used on eBay. I bought a um, M905. This is a monitor controller. Uh, you could check it out on their on their website. I called because you know this. I I, I got this thing for like twenty five hundred bucks, and I could not find a used one anywhere except this one on eBay. And uh, So I bid on it and, you know, asked some questions. Well, of course I asked the questions and then I bid on it. And as it turns out, the guy that was selling it was like an hour away from me in uh, Santa Rosa, uh, north of San Francisco, north of, uh, north of Lafayette, where I'm at here. So I drove up and I picked it up. And I mean, the thing was just pristine, absolutely pristine. I thought, Hmm, I wonder what the warranty situation is. So I started to do my digging and I called Grace and said, uh, here's the serial number what's the deal? And they said, Oh, Hmm. Well, that's that warranty for that unit you bought is good until 2021. I was like, uh, what? 2021. Okay. Oh, all right. And, uh, really nice folks picked up the phone really quick, you know, did not, you know, turn me away because I didn't buy the unit new from them. They were very welcoming. And I said, Oh, you guys are in Colorado. And, uh, I said, I'll be out there around Thanksgiving time, you know, visiting some, visiting some relatives. And they said, um, well, you should come on out, come check out the place. And so, uh, I don't know. I'm, it's not that I'm easily impressed, but pleasantly surprised when a company that you deal with like that is so welcoming and so, um, you know, and not artificially welcoming. I mean, of course people are selling shit and they want, you know, to be welcoming, but and that's the skeptical side of me speaking, but these guys were genuinely very cool and, um, supportive. And I thought, wow, I'm really glad I got this piece of gear. Not only does it work great, but, uh, 
great company. So be checking them out more in the future for sure. Let's see. Uh, NAM show is coming up January 25th through the 28th in Anaheim. That's winter NAM, of course. Just to be clear about that, because I don't want anybody to get any uh, buy any plane tickets and then discover they can't go. The show is not open to the public. You got to go through an exhibitor. Maybe you know somebody at a drum company or a guitar company or a pro audio company, and you have a reason to be there, you know, through them. So if, uh, if you're going to be there, cool, I will definitely be there. And that's, uh, like I said, January 25th through the 28th. So yeah, probably should book your ticket and try to find a place to stay quick because everybody else is. And uh, it's going to be a little different this year from what I understand. Uh, there's going to be, there's a whole separate building that they're doing the the pro audio in. That's what I'm to understand. I'm, I may be totally off base there, but that is what I have heard. If you've heard different, of course, let me know. And I haven't confirmed this, but I, uh, I have also seen that AES is going to have a presence there. So not really clear what that means. Um, yeah, uh, here we go. AES at NAM 2018. Yeah. Pro Sound Symposium live in studio. So yeah. Yeah. What does it say here? With a vision to continue to strengthen the music and pro audio industries, NAM and the a and AES have announced a new collaborative alliance. Okay. So I was right, which will integrate pro audio educational training activities related to live sound, performance, audio recording technology, and other topics into the NAM show of 2018 in Anaheim. So uh, yeah, check that out. You could check that out at AES.org uh, or you could just Google AES NAM and it'll come right up. Anyhow, check it out. Yeah. Always a fun time for some people. Some people hate going to NAM. I enjoy it. I get a rush out of it and I go every day. I go all day. You know, if we're counting steps, I'm sure I'm beyond 10,000. So for you Fitbit people out there, uh, what else, what else is going on? Ah, I know what I wanted to tell you. Of course, uh, speaking of gear, since I'm sitting here staring at my Apollo, uh, if you buy an Apollo rack, from Universal Audio, and before December 31st, you're going to get a free satellite in the deal, a free satellite DSP box. You know what that is. So just head on over to uaudio.com, scroll down, you'll see the whole Apollo Rack plus free satellite promo. Super cool deal. Um, I definitely, you know, love having a couple satellites in my setup. I've got an Apollo 8P and two Octo satellites, and I have a twin that I take around with me. And, uh, yeah, check that out at uaudio.com. Also, just a, uh, a shout out if you, uh, speaking of gear, once again, I know gear, it's coming up. What are we talking about? We're not supposed to talk about gear on working class audio. Head on over to gearslets.com, not only for the sub forum that we sponsor, uh, Audio Life, but also because the gear classifieds over there if you're looking for anything used. So it's always fun to go over to gearslets and see what's, uh, what they have for sale, what people are selling. Always interested in the prices too. What the hell is going on with NS10M Studios? People are selling them for like $1,500. I don't know where they're getting that concept. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, there's some NS10Ms. There's different forms of them. Then, and here's a pair for $550. Anyhow, yeah, check out the uh, classifieds over at gearsluts.com. One of my favorite places to, uh, <laughs> to peruse for gear that I'm not going to buy. <laughs> I'm just window shopping, friends. That's it. That's it. Don't worry. 
what else? Well, I know. I wanted to thank those of you that have gone over to iTunes and have left some really fantastic reviews of the show. That is certainly a super, super cool of you. Appreciate it. Some nice things you all have said. And uh, if you have something nice to say and you haven't said it, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Let everybody know what you think of the show. And uh, only if it's nice, though. If it's negative, just like I always say, steer clear of that place. You don't want to go near there. Uh, Also, if you're new to the show and if this is one of your first times being here, uh, make sure and head on over to the Working Class Audio website. We do have the archive there. And I can now officially say we have over 150 episodes to listen to. How about that? Check it out. You can, uh, you know, scroll through them. Just, you know, go to workingclassaudio.com, click on you know, archive, working class audio archive. Also check out the recommendations. I really put a lot of thought into some of these things that I put up there, uh, books, movies, uh, financial tools that you can use to get your, uh, help get your financial house in order. Uh, what else? Uh, we're in November. We're in the tail end of the year. If it's been a, uh, if it's been a good year for you, fantastic. I hope next year is a good year for you. Uh, if it's been a rough year for you, keep, keep your head up. It's going to be better. Just focus on what's not working for you and, uh, figure out how to change that and to, uh, oh, you know, always be reevaluating. If you keep doing the same shit over and over again, obviously you're, you're going to get the same result, but, uh, you know, try to, try to figure out what it is that, uh, you want to do in the next year and focus on that and, uh, try to wrap up the, uh, wrap up the year on a happy note, uh, and never fear, you know, stay positive, stay focused. That's it. Let's get down to it. Let's, uh, talk mastering with David Glasser of Airshow Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I figured we'd start from the beginning because I find the uh, the beginning of your career pretty uh, interesting. The part that precedes airshow mastering, and that yep. is mm-hmm. well. First of all, you went to Brandeis University, correct? Yep. Uh, graduated mm-hmm. in seventy five. Correct. Uh, what did you get your degree in? <laughs> My degree is in art history. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I knew it was going to be something completely not related. Yeah, yeah, and um, I. I Found out pretty early in my college days that uh, I I really preferred hanging out at the radio station, um, so that's um, that's where I really got my start was at the college radio station. Is that was that WCRB? It was. How do you know all this stuff? The great internet. Yeah. What does one learn at a radio station in in the mid to late seventies? What are some of the valuable lessons that you think are important? A lot of it was um, about discovering music and having access to. Um, a pretty darn good music library with tons of jazz and all the new rock stuff and things that I hadn't been exposed to. So uh, for me, that was the big thing. And being fascinated by all the gadgets and, um, uh, you know, the console doing a, a, a radio show and learning how all that stuff worked. Were your senses about how records were made heightened at that point, or were you still in more of a music fascination part part of your career you know both i'm one of those guys i'm sure you were too i always read all the liner notes and uh you know names familiar names kept on popping up you see all those names and uh you start to um associate certain certain sounds and uh certain vibes with those names the ecm records in the 70s uh you know i i I bought every ecm record that i could until i i ran out of money Hmm. loved the manfred eichard productions and you 
sort of get a sense it's it's not all the same, that there's a lot of ways of, of making records. And that, that really fascinated me. Now, this is interesting to me. You actually worked at NPR. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I worked there for eight years. How did that job come up? Was that just an extension of your days in radio, just the next step kind of thing? Yeah. Um, um, my job at uh, this classical station, WCRB, involved doing recordings of the Boston Symphony and Boston Pops, which was just an amazing experience at, uh, at Symphony Hall, and handling the the tape syndication for for all the uh, the shows, mm-hmm. you know, pre-internet, I ran a tape duplicator, and uh, we would duplicate these symphony shows every week and mail out shows in these um, plastic mailers to a couple hundred stations every week. That was how um, things got got around. After a while, I needed a change. A job came up at NPR in Washington, and I applied and. Um, and was hired. So uh, that's how that started. Huh. Tell me about working at NPR. What kind of culture was that like? Uh, NPR in those days was amazing. There were lots of um, young engineers. There was probably 30, 35, 40 engineers, all starting out or at the um, beginning of their careers. It was wide open. And everybody worked on everything from uh, overnight shifts, doing news productions to... um, going out and recording press conferences and all that boring nonsense. But what I liked the most was the, um, the studio production. Uh, we, we did a lot of radio documentary work, and uh, we didn't have multi-track machines. So in order to assemble a show like that, uh, we would have like four, five, six, seven two-track machines. And you would choreograph each scene, mark the... Um, the quarter-inch tape with grease pencils, where uh, when you see that grease pencil mark go by, you start tape three and bring the fader up. And then um, at the next grease pencil mark, you would start a record of sound effects and mix that in. And um, there would be a bed of crickets underneath it all. And every, you know, couple minutes, um, you'd stop, set up the next scene, and then assemble the the master by cutting it all together. Amazing. (laughs) Wow. Such different uh, technology at that point in time. It really was, yeah. It afforded a lot of um, creative solutions and a lot of flexibility that counterintuitively you don't have with multi-track because once you lay all your tracks down, in those days anyway, on on tape, you couldn't slide things around in time. But with this Mm -hmm. kind of production, you could. And we did some some pretty cool, cool things. And what I also did, and that's what really set up the rest of my of my career was doing a lot of concert recordings and live concert broadcast production. Did you have a mentor there that uh, you learned a lot from? Uh, yeah, there were a few. I don't know if, if you've ever um, heard of Neil Muncy. I haven't. He didn't work at at, at NPR, but he um, consulted at, at NPR. Uh, if you look him up, he's the guy who uh, wrote the definitive book on um, uh, audio grounding. And uh, you can get that through the AES. He built consoles for little studios and for um, the um, White House guys who recorded all the um, presidential stuff. And his his equipment was was rock solid. It was uh, um, he used Melkor op amps, the uh, predecessor of the API twenty five twenties. Anyway, Neil was around, and he was a big inspiration. There were a couple other engineers there who I learned a lot from. Guys who were doing um, uh, opera recording and jazz recording. In terms of um, you know climbing up the ladder 
what was what was that experience like there coming in like you know the new guy and uh learning from the the elders so to speak yeah uh, well uh, uh, ultimately it got to be very frustrating because uh, like any large bureaucratic in, um institution um in a, in a lot of ways they wanted all the engineers to be interchangeable so if they needed somebody on um the morning edition shift you know from um five in the morning until noon, they could have anybody. I, I wanted to pursue the, the music and the um, live broadcast production thing. So I, I left in um, 87 and, and went freelance. You couldn't necessarily carve your own path there? To an extent you could, but um, you know, ultimately um, it was what it was. Yeah. You serve your purpose and, and to have more freedom, you moved on. Um, I don't want to minimize it because um, uh, some of the things that we did there were were a whole lot of fun. I learned an awful lot. And we did some um, some really cool, cool projects. Um, uh, I was on the cruise uh, that, that did the um, live jazz New Year's Eve shows where they would um, broadcast a, um, a jazz concert in each time zone. And, um, and follow New Year's across the country. So I think the first year uh, we were in the basement of the Keystone Corner in San Francisco with um, Art Blakey and, and a reunion of the Jazz Messengers. Wow. Uh, one year um, I was at uh, Chick Corea's studio, uh, Mad Hatter Studios in um, Los Angeles. We did a live broadcast from there. He assembled a reunion of the first um, Return to Forever band. Uh, so, you know, there were some... Some pretty cool things. There's some good highlights there. Definitely the, yeah. the Art Blakey thing, man. That would be yeah, <laughs> amazing. Um, what is it about live recording that, that you like? I haven't done it for quite a while, but what uh, I liked was the, um, the adrenaline and the excitement of, of capturing something as it was, was happening. It's weird because I'm petrified of live sound, of uh, doing PA at a console with thousands of people all around you. But I always felt pretty good uh, in a recording truck broad, um, doing a national um, live uh, broadcast, I guess, because I couldn't see the people who were listening. And for, for 10 years, I, um, I mixed the Paul Winter Consort Winter Solstice broadcast live from St. John the Divine in, in, in New York. Hmm. And for most of those, we used the record plant truck. Fun times, man. Yeah, man. That, that sounds that sounds like a whole lot of fun. All of this, this where you went to school and to a lesser degree, but to a more serious degree, the you know the NPR gig, the radio station gigs. How does that lead you into a career in mastering? And how did how did mastering come into your world? Boy, a uh, couple ways to uh, to answer that. I think that some of the production work that we that we did at uh, NPR kind of led me to that. NPR produced some really good folk music shows that they syndicated and um, an and excellent uh, jazz show called Jazz, jazz Alive. It was all live uh, jazz recordings. And most of it was recorded uh, straight to two-track. In the um, studio, we had to make those two-track mixes sound as good as uh, as they could. So really, you know, that that, that was kind of like, like what I'm doing now sitting at my mastering console. I, I'm trying to find out that point of where you, where you came to your, in your mind and said, I'm going to open a mastering studio. Uh, that came about sort of by, uh, by accident. I was doing uh, a lot of, uh, of live concert recordings, classical 
concerts and and uh, and jazz concerts, and the Sony F1 machines had just okay. come out, and you could um, you know you could pack everything up in in a suitcase as opposed to lugging um, a, a couple of um, uh, analog reel to reel machines and a rack of Dolby's around. You know th- this was incredible. In retrospect, they didn't sound all that great, but <laughs> they sure were convenient to record. Once you got the tapes, you really couldn't do much with them. So I. I bought one of the first DigiDesign sound tools systems to um, uh, be able to to, uh, to edit those those tapes, and things just kind of grew. Um, you know, from uh, from there, I moved up to a Sonic Solutions system. Uh, I bought a um, Sony sixteen ten and a um, BVU eight hundred three quarter inch video machine off of David Hewitt, and. All of a sudden, I was set up for making CD masters. So it, it sort of happened by, by accident, and and grew grew from there. Because you opened the studio kind of around in '83, right? That's when I established the company. Okay. Um, I was still at at NPR, but I was doing freelance gigs under that that name, Air Show Shows on the Air. That's where the uh, the name came from. In '87, when I left NPR, um, I was mainly doing live recording and then sort of transition to doing editing and mastering at like 89 90 and 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 just kept the name but uh, yeah that's uh, that that's how it all happened and and for the younger listeners you know essentially the cd if i'm correct correct me if i'm wrong i think it it's it started commercially being available in 1981 roughly yeah i think so so yeah. the cd was that was our main mode of of consumption would you say at that point in time uh let's see I know I was probably still buying LPs up through like 1990 or so. Okay. Um, and, and then for me anyway, it turned into all CDs. Yeah. So business was coming in, right? Yes. Um, early on, I uh, established uh, a, a relationship with a um, really good bluegrass label, uh, Rebel Records, that did a lot of the really, really great bluegrass recordings. And from there, um, I started doing stuff for some of the other big bluegrass labels, uh, Rounder Records, uh, Sugar Hill Records. Then I, I moved my studio into a spare room at Bias Recording, which is one of the big studios in the um, Washington, D.C. area, mm-hmm. and started doing mastering for all the all the great projects that um, that they were, were recording and mixing. How, for you, I mean, you've been at this a while now doing, doing mastering. I'm curious about your perspective about not only the technology, but the techniques and the the approach to mastering then as it compares to now. What's changed for you, if any changes happened? A lot of it is the same, but um, I think when I started, uh, people were still mixing records as if the mix was the final product. So the mixes, I think, were a lot closer to um, to the final master than they often are now. Back then, anyway, it was it was more um, a matter of getting the best uh, transfer of the masters and um, cleaning things up. Now, um, of course, that that still happens, but you know, now it could it it could involve you know major surgery uh, for for projects, and and I, I think that's where the biggest biggest change is. Of course, the technology you could do a, a whole lot more. Um, now with with the tools that we have yeah what why do you think people were better at getting the mix closer to being the final thing then than they are now my guess is that because um back then uh you know you you mixed um to um to analog tape 
cut all the mixes together and you pretty much expected that whoever was was cutting the the lacquers was going to do a um um more or less a a flat transfer maybe with some overall eq some overall compression but they weren't going to go in microscopically like like we can do now so i think that the mindset was was different you know now i think a lot of people mix with the idea that that certain things that used to be done in mixing can now be accomplished uh when they send it to the mastering studio do you think the quality of the mixes is worse now than it was then no um i you know it's um I, I think any mastering engineer will will tell you this. Um, you get stuff that's that's phenomenal and stuff that's mediocre, and um, you know that's that's just the way that it is. So on the mediocre stuff and the stuff that's potentially subpar, is there ever a hesitation on your part to attach your name to that? No. Okay. And that's because um, somebody has saved up some some good money and come to me and said, "I'm going to give you all this money." for you to master my my record and i want them to be happy with result and um i'll do everything that i can to make sure that that they're happy even if it's not a a masterpiece they're going to come away knowing that um we've taken their mixes to the next level and um uh, you know that would be arrogant i think to say don't uh, don't credit me on that right okay yeah you established the business in 83 but yep. you were still at NPR. At what point did you actually create a facility? I built a, a basement studio when I left um, NPR. But the first uh, quote-unquote real studio was when we moved uh, to Bias Recording and um, set up a, a dedicated mastering room in their, in their building. That was uh, 90, I guess. Yeah, 1990. In 97, I moved to Boulder and we built a... Um, a really nice uh, facility, like a 2,500 foot um, square foot facility with two two mastering rooms and a production room. Eventually expanded that to the space next door. Uh, this was in a, um, a commercial um, commercial building that we leased, and that worked really well until um, a couple years ago when I decided, um, you know, um, things are changing. My priorities are changing. Uh, we shut that down, and I I built a uh, a building. On my property, which is in the foothills, about five miles west of, of Boulder, hmm. um, up in the in in the mountains, built a building. Had Sam Burkow design the um, the control room and um, opened that up last last summer. Wow, that's been going great. Yeah. So it's on your property. Yep. That's my commute is is about a hundred feet. Oh, you gotta love that. <laughs> and it it's been nominated for a um, a tech award this year, which I'm really psyched about. The studio. The studio. Yeah. Wow. In in what capacity? Uh, in the studio design category. Interesting. Tell me about that. Is there anything particular that people would be interested in in terms of how it's designed? Uh, well, uh, yeah, a couple things. The building itself is a SIPS panel building, S-I-P-S, uh, which stands for Structural in, um, Integrated Panel System. So it's a prefab building that once the, the foundation is done, the uh, structure goes up in, in about four days. The panel's locked together with, with cam locks. It's super insulated, really simple building, but um, Sam, you know, uh, Sam and I consulted um, often and continuously about this, but uh, he he came up with some interesting variations on his designs uh, that that worked out real well. Particularly some base trapping that we have that's above the ceiling um, of the control room, mm -hmm. uh, and it just sounds great. So you're super happy with it, obviously. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Being that it's a prefab modular build, does that reduce the cost as opposed to a building from scratch with traditional building methods? No. Uh, it it all turns out to be about the same in construction costs, um, but ultimately this building will save money because of the um, the energy efficiency. Mm. In, in terms of just how it's insulated and such? Yeah. The... Uh, Panels, which which make up the um, the walls and the roof, uh, are are super insulated and very very tight. So it just turns out to be a really really efficient structure. And as far as heating and cooling, did you add you know that in in the game? Oh yeah, there's a um, a low uh, low velocity uh, high volume HVAC system. I don't think that the heat has um, has ever kicked on, but the uh, air conditioning uh, runs. Uh, 12 months a year because of all the the heat producing equipment. In terms of, you know, clients uh, having attended sessions over the years, has has that changed at all? Is it is it much less now? I I, I think it's about the same. I'd guess like 30, 30 to, to 35, 40% attended and the rest unattended. Obviously, unattended mastering is far easier now than it used to be in terms of mm-hmm. commun- oh, for sure. communication yeah. and file delivery and such. When you set up your new place that you're in now, did you make specific accommodations for you know expecting clients to come in? Oh yeah, well we um, we have a um, you know nice little lounge and um, you know just everything that a client would would want when he or she comes in, a uh, little kitchen and uh, you know just everything that you expect. Do you have a preference of having attended or unattended sessions? You know, I enjoy both. I didn't get into this business to be locked in a sealed room alone. <laughs> um, I really like interacting with um, with with people here, and that often makes a better product because uh, you know they they have all the insight to to the details of the project. So um, so yeah, I, I I enjoy attended sessions, but um, it, it also turns usually turns out well unattended as well. Are you able to have more take more time with it? Do you feel when it's unattended? Yes. Yeah, I'll often um, start in the afternoon before the scheduled session and and play around a little bit. Come back in the morning and see if what I was thinking still makes sense, and then finish the project, and then maybe. Uh, go over it a little bit more before the the masters go out. So there's there's that flexibility. In in terms of the the the, the setup, you mentioned gear gear that produces heat. So obviously you have s- some analog gear there, but I assume that you know you're you're assembling inside it some DAW. Yeah, the, uh, used mainly as a tape machine. Um, I use um, Sonic Studio Soundblade yeah. and occasionally Pro, uh, Pro Tools, and that becomes the um, the playback deck and the recorder after all the um you usually outboard and outboard gear have you ventured much into the world of software replacements for some of the outboard gear over the years not replacements but there are some some plugins that i use regularly but uh no i haven't um really delved into the emulation type type plugins dedicated mastering engineers like yourself who have a facility like this and i hate to say but in my mind it's almost it's almost like a cliche but there's always some very high dollar speaker involved uh, in the in the five to six figure <laughs> range. Is that the case here? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm using Dunleavy uh, SC5s, which um, boy, I'm going on uh, 20 years um, of oh wow of using those. I'm so familiar with them, um, and and we have a surround setup, so um, it's uh, SC5s for the left and right, and SC4s for the center and and surrounds. Wow. Okay. Long term, yeah. do you have an opinion about um, changing 
switching horses midstream, so to speak. In other words, changing speakers over the years and changing um, habits. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, I dread that day. I know that it's coming um, <laughs> <laughs> someday uh, because it's going to cost a, a shitload of money to uh, um, replace the, the speakers. And there are a couple out there that um, uh, I've, I've heard that I, that I really like, but, um, uh, you know, when the time comes, we'll, <laughs> we'll deal with it. Yeah. It's, it seems like um, everything in the world uh, that's marketed to mastering engineers is always like it's in multiples of $5,000 mm-hmm. and always, always, you know, extra pricey compared to its uh, recording counterpart or recording, you know, the thing that is similar to it in recording, whether yep. it's an EQ or, or a compressor. What is your approach with your gear and how it relates to your business and your, your money management? Do you... Do you lust for gear? Do you? How do you manage that for yourself personally? It's funny because when I was first building the the, um, the studio and decided that that mastering was was where I I, I want to be. I thought uh, this has got to be cheaper than a recording studio because it's only two channels. Um, but uh, you know I was I was wrong about that. In terms of gear, uh, my my gear has been fairly steady over um, the last. 10 years or so. Occasionally, I'll, I'll try out a piece and, and buy a piece. I'm going to try out a new equalizer next week. I, I could count on one hand the number of times when a client has specifically asked for a specific piece of gear. So um, it's, it's really, you know, for um, it's really for me, uh, you know, if, if, if I'm happy with it, then, um, then I could produce a master that the client's going to be happy with. That's interesting. So a client specifically requesting a particular piece of gear in your mastering chain. Well, I, I, um, like I said, that's happened maybe a handful of times uh, over many, many years. And there's still one client who insists on this. Um, converters, uh, when when people would say, uh, boy, I, uh, I I want this done on a Pacific Microsonics converter. And we we have those. But in terms of EQ and, and compression and stuff... Yeah, I don't think anybody has ever said, um, I'm only going to work with you if you have this particular gear. And most of them are, aren't even all that curious about, about what gear was used. I don't know if that's the case with you when you, when you do recording um, or not. You know, I never have a client ask me. It's usually the only debate at, at the front is, oh, should we track this to two-inch yeah. or a DAW? Pacific Microsonics, if I'm correct, only made so many of those converters. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how many, but um, they're uh, rare as hen's teeth now. Yeah. Pretty big too, like like four or five rack space tall. Uh, there are three rack spaces, okay. but the power supply is separate. The power supply weighs 25 pounds uh, for those things, and uh, uh, and they st- and they still sound good. That's the 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 rare example of. Um, um, a piece of digital equipment that uh, has has maintained um, quality and and value over the years. Yeah. Very over engineered piece of equipment, if I recall. Yeah, they. I'm sure their price is going up as as time continues to go along. Yeah, and and they're also um, harder to maintain, which uh, which is drag. You know, so I have other converters um, to fall back on uh, as well. 
David Glasser of Airshow Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, we're going to pause for a bit. We're going to talk about our friends over at Audio Technica for a second. Have you seen these headphones that they're doing? These ATH M50 XRDs. This is a. This is a, of course they're M50s, uh, M50Xs, uh, but it's a limited edition. They kind of look a little bit like Tony Stark's outfit. You know who Tony Stark is, Iron Man, right? Very cool. I got to admit. Uh, I know they're 50s and I, I do love the 40s. The 50s are cool, but I do like the 40s. But these are so cool. I don't know. I might have to get a pair of these. Anyhow, check them out. They're at audio-technica.com. You can't miss it because there's a little banner right up top. So uh, be sure and head over there and check them out and see what you think. Um, if you're a fan of the 50s and you like this color, this is kind of neat. I like this. Now, if red and gold is not your jam, as the kids say, uh, they have other colors. You should check it out, though. Go over to audio-technica.com once again and uh, have a look around. Find the headphones that sound right for you and that uh, you like the style of and uh, pick yourself up a pair because you can buy them right there on the site. I don't know if you knew that. You can do that now. Anyways, uh, let's get back into it. Let's talk some more with uh, David Glasser of Airshow Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Uh, you do Mastering for 5.1. This is a world that fascinates me. I used to be quite skeptical of it, and now I'm, I, I think I'm coming around. Is it, and I asked another guest this, I mean, other than film, in the world of music, is it a legitimate thing now, like right now? I, I think for some people it is. I'm not seeing those, those projects much anymore. So my 5.1 work is mainly um it's mainly for like concert video things okay yeah we do all the um uh, grateful dead video um projects and and those are all five one. Oh wow well, that's a that's a good project to have in terms of just like yep. you know catalog and business coming in oh for sure <laughs> the band that keeps on giving no kidding man well so in the world of surround mastering how different is that than than two-channel mastering. Uh, well, the the goals are the same, but there's a lot more moving pieces. For example, sometimes you'll get a um, a stereo mix in that uh, where the channels are unbalanced. You need to um, bump up the right channel to uh, keep things centered. With five one, you've got five channels plus the subwoofer to deal with, and um, maybe the mixer um, kind of overdid it on the surround, so you. You need to bring the surrounds down. You need to bring the center up. You need to um, essentially rebalance the the sound field, plus all the um, the EQ and, um, and and dynamics concerns. But uh, yeah, it's uh, um, it's fun. Um, I really enjoy those those projects. I wish we were getting more. But um, sounds like it's almost like somewhat related to stem mastering. Uh, yeah, yeah. In a way, it is getting these different components that you can kind of mm -hmm. really rebalance the mix. Yeah. In essence. But not much music uh, surround work other than concert videos coming in these days, you say? Uh, to us, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I realize all client work that comes in varies in, you know, style, uh, quality. But what is your mindset for mastering? What is your approach to it? What is your, what is your goal for your clients other than happiness? 
Some of it involves a little mind reading and and conversations, of course, you know, to um, figure out what what they're after. With some clients, when they say we're really really happy with these mixes, you know that um, you want to do real real minimal things to the mix because hey, they're they're happy with it. When other clients say we're happy with these mixes, what they really mean is we're happy to have you do whatever you want to make them sound good. Um, so, so you have to um, kind of read read those kind of clues. My approach, uh, you draw on um, on years and many hundreds um, of um, of previous projects to know you know where where something should sit in a particular genre. You know, if it's a um, an Americana folk thing, where should that live in the in the universe of records like that? Do you do a lot of comparative listening to, to other people's stuff just to kind of get a sense of what's out there? Probably not as much as I should. And is there a particular type of music that you enjoy that's your you know your favorite to do? When it comes in, you just go, "Oh yeah, I love records like this." I do a lot of acoustic music and I really love that whether it's um Americana type stuff or bluegrassy stuff or jazz I, I enjoy that quite a bit but I also uh you know like like working on the um on the big rock things so um I, I think what I like most is the variety mm. um you know if I was stuck doing um doing hard rock every day I don't think I would like hard rock all that much as I do now. You know, you get a rock record one day and a jazz record the next day and uh, maybe a gospel record. So um, it's the variety of, of the types of music and the music itself that what I like about, about the job, I think. What do you think is important for mastering in general to do? Like if you were, if kind of speaking to those out there who are entering the mastering world or in the mastering world at a, at a lower level than you are in terms of, you know, success, what do you think is important that they should be aware of from a from a sonic standpoint, from an approach, from a philosophical standpoint even? You have to listen to the mixes and see what, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cliche, it, uh, it, it sounds weird, but you have to sort of listen to what the, the mixes are telling you to do. That uh, there, um, there's no cookie, cookie cutter approaches to, um, to anything. And to know what your gear does inside out, um, so that that's second nature, because you don't want to, um, you know, have to be figuring that stuff out while you're you're um, while you're working on the <clears throat> on the music. Just like a musician doesn't think about what what chords they're fingering when they're playing. Know your tools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And get out of. Let, don't let your tools become an, an obstacle to achieving the result. And um, of course, then, then there's the me mechanical type things. Um, you know, we're, we're usually the last humans who, um, who listen to the music before it, it gets released. So um, quality control and um, making sure that um, we've, you know, we've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and um, all the, the various versions um, of the masters are are correct you know that's that's a big part yeah and stopping to listen to everything at the very end to as you yeah. say qc yeah uh, my uh, my other engineer usually does does all the um qc listening and uh, yeah she listens to every master that that goes out the door i mean other than the obvious things like uh, dropouts or clicks or pops or yeah. any of that is that ultimately what she's li listening for oh uh, yeah that and um 
if it's a mastered for iTunes, master it, make sure that that's conforming. Um, make sure that all the all the metadata is correct. Um, make sure that uh, that everything is well documented. Um, but yeah, it's um, primarily to make sure that there's nothing that we miss we miss during the session itself. The work life balance thing. How have you managed that over the years? Well, I'm managing a lot better now where I'm concentrating more on working with my clients and less on on managing a a staff. I got to say I enjoy that. When things get busy, you know, I'll I'll work as long as it takes, but uh when things are just busy enough, which is where I like it, then I've got time, you know, to um to do the other things that that I like to do. And as far as things that you do outside of mastering, do you have other hobbies or habits or uh, routines, anything like that that inspires you? Yeah, well, the main thing that I do outside of here is uh, I'm, a, I'm a firefighter on my local um, fire department. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a semi-rural uh, mountain community, and it's an a all-volunteer department. We know a lot of the neighbors, and um, it's, it's just a, um, an exciting and um, challenging thing to do that I, I enjoy very much. And I spend a lot of time. I spend you know, several hundred hours um, a year just on training, um, you know, plus responding to calls. That is amazing. That is really <laughs> amazing. Wow. I, I, I commend you for that. That's, well, thanks. Yeah. that's a noble thing to do. Fires that we've had north of San Francisco out oh, here my God. have just yeah. been, you know, that yeah. is... Um, I mean, it hasn't impacted me except for, you know, some smoke in the air, which I just dismiss and go, my house isn't burning. I'm thankful. I'm not going to complain. Yeah. Well, well, we live in a, um, uh, you know, in a similar kind of, um, kind of a zone. Uh, You know, it's, it's in, uh, in the woods in a semi-arid mountainous area. Um, So wildfire is, um, is a big concern. We were lucky this year. Uh, We had, I think, four fires uh, in if you believe it, last February and March, which are usually very wet um, times, but since then it's been it's been good. Wow, I think you're the first firefighter that's been on the show. <laughs> when you do that, are you obviously you take time off for training? Yep. Do you spend time in the traditional sense at a firehouse? No, uh, it's um, being a volunteer department. Um, everybody is on call um, all the time, so um, the result is. Uh, for most calls, enough people respond uh, to every call, um, so it, it it all works out. Usually, too many people respond mm. to a call. And I mean, even for a simple house fire call, uh, that's not so simple. <laughs> um, house house fires, fortunately, are pretty rare. Okay, um, we get no more than a couple a year. Uh, wildfires are a little more common than that, but most of it is uh, is medical. Um, motor vehicle accidents um, and other uh, other hazard things, but fires are um, kind of a small part. So obviously, you're trained in in CPR and uh, yeah. other life saving uh, measures. Wow, I tell you, in future audio trade shows, I'm going to stay stay somewhat in your general vicinity <laughs> in case anything happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious, though. Um, I'm making this up in my head, so you tell me if I'm wrong. I was hanging out with uh, J.J. Blair and Jamie, whose name I can't remember. Last name is, I'm spacing right now. Jamie, Jamie Howarth? Howarth. 
Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that if if you have time. Yeah. Well, so my recollection is, is that Jamie and JJ and I all came into this restaurant because there was somebody who holds a, a, an annual dinner. That's right. That was last year in Los Angeles, right? And yeah. And I think you were there, and I believe her name is Joyce, who is Terry Gross's engineer. Yes. From NPR mm-hmm. was there. That's right. Because I saw your yep. face and I was like, I think I met him at that dinner that we all blew through really quick. Now I remember. Yeah. Um, we um, get together with uh, friends of Sam, Sam Burkow. There we go. Every year. Yeah. You mentioned Jamie. Are, are, are you familiar with his planchin processes? Uh, I'm familiar with it, but I think for the audience, we should kind of explain it because it's, I don't know too much about it. I have a cursory yeah. knowledge of it. So if you know more, please let, let it. Yeah, let it um, we're we're set up to do uh, transfers for for Plangent. Um, I got turned on to Plangent by Jeffrey Norman, who 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 you might know. I don't. Um, I don't. Uh, he's an engineer in Petaluma, and, and he does um, a lot of the Grateful Dead um, oh. cat- catalog stuff. Um, it, it's a um, technology for. Removing uh, wow and flutter and any other speed um, variations, uh, even very, very, very minor variations from from analog tapes. And uh, he does it by um, using the latent bias signal that is still on the tape, and you extract that, and um, we prepare the transfers so that um, when we send the files to Jamie in Massachusetts, he'll use that that bias signal as a, uh, as a reference for, um, um, speed, for speed correcting the, the tape. And it's not lo- just for a real blatant audible wow or, or flutter, that kind of stuff. Um, but you, um, you smooth out all the um, little scrape flutter and, um, and wow and so forth. And the, the, the result is it reduces the distortion that's coming off the tape which was induced induced mechanically by the by the transport and uh the stereo image you know snaps into focus bass gets more solid and i'm a i'm a huge believer you know, in that uh we've been using that for all the grateful dead projects and some other um things as well but that's um that to me is one of the big innovations of the, of the past uh, decade. And Jamie is credited with creating that? Yeah, yeah, that's Jamie's um, creation. Yeah. What what an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, so the he's, he's doing that by, you say, getting the bias signal that's still mm-hmm. there on the tape. Yeah. And it, would that signal be a high-frequency signal? Yeah, depending on the tape machine, uh, it's... Um, Anywhere from 90 kilohertz on you know, some of the early early tape machines to um, 150 kilohertz or so on on some of the uh, later um, you know mid um, period Ampexes to like two, 250 for the Studers. The um, ATR 100s are like 450 kilohertz. That we can't get the bias off of, but there's other telltale signals from a, uh, an ATR tape that we can work with. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very high frequency signal, usually almost bar- buried in the, um, in, in the noise, but we've got Jamie's electronics and some wideband heads and some analysis equipment to, um, to find and extract that, that signal. It is mind blowing. Really? I mean, we've kind of, I mean, we've had a lot of innovations over the years, but I yeah. mean, that is to be able to do that with old recordings 
Yeah, I I wish that that uh, more um, more producers would would take advantage of it. Um, there's all these reissues coming out from um, from older material, and I was like, geez, you know, I wish that uh, uh, those Rolling Stones tapes would have used that, or um, uh, you know. Uh, all these old jazz things would have would have used plangent. As it as it happens, um, uh, Bob Ludwig has used it for uh, for all the uh, Bruce Springsteen um, reissues. Uh, we've used it for all for all the Grateful Dead stuff. I think Jamie's done things for Queen, um, a bunch of old jazz recordings, and some some film film soundtracks. So anyway, that's um, that's one of the things that I'm excited about. Yeah, that's definitely something to be excited about. My my. Um, I have no information to back this up because I don't know what it costs, but I would assume that it costs a fair amount. It will add roughly $1,700 to $2,000 onto the cost of um, mastering an, an album from from the original analog tapes. Which, if you're doing a, a legacy box set type concept, that doesn't seem that far out what- of budget. One would think, but um, you know, money um, is on everybody's mind, and yeah. it, it um, it's um, it, it's a hard sell sometimes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to uh, uh, dig into that and see if is there a website for that that you're aware of? Yeah, uh, plangentprocesses.com. Okay. Um, and um, you could just call Jamie directly. Yeah. Hanging out with he and JJ Blair was super super enjoyable. <laughs> I was unaware of his process, and I think it was only later in that in the evening he started to say yeah i kind of do this thing and he was very humble about it uh you should talk to him on one of your your yeah. later podcasts yeah absolutely because it's it's a fascinating concept i think that that's um like the next frontier in audio in audio processing in uh, things like um, noise reduction you know that's all in the frequency domain um uh, you know, getting rid of tape hiss, you know, that's a, a frequency domain mm-hmm. um, problem. Um, what he's doing is um, a time domain issue. And MQA is also doing that with, with their um, de-blurring filter, um, filtering, just making, making things better by manipulating the, the time domain rather than the frequency domain, which we're all so, so used to. Well, do you think that at any point, people would second guess using his process because it would change the character of what we're used to hearing. That's a really good question, and um, I think that may be why some people are reluctant. I think what you have to do is to uh, you have to be able to convince yourself that um, what his process is is doing to the best of its um, its capability is giving you the signal that um, is letting you essentially monitor the input of the tape machine at the um, session, but, but still giving you the, the cool things that, that, that tape gives you, um, the uh, saturation and um, certain non, non-linearities, but without all the um, mechanical limitations of a physical tape transport. And it obviously this this process is only applicable to tape because tape has that bias signal whereas yeah. obviously a wax cylinder is a completely different process. You know he, he um he he applied it to a wire recording. Oh. Um that that had some uh, 60 cycle hum I think on there and 
he was able to use that 60 cycle hum as the as the reference oh signal yeah fascinating times we live in yep with some very smart people like jamie smarter than i'll ever be (laughs) thank you david for for coming on the show and telling me about your world and especially uh the aspects that are unexpected like you being a firefighter that's uh really amazing but it's a pleasure to to speak with you matt thanks a bunch i'm glad that we got to um to meet each other and uh this is this has been fun i've been listening to your show for a while oh uh, it's it's great to be on it well thank you um and people can find out more about you at airshowmastering.com. Yes. So I'll put that in the show notes and people can check that out. And uh, we'll also, of course, uh, mention uh, uh, the stuff we've talked about with uh, Jamie Howarth and uh, the plangent process. So uh, cool. Well, thank you, David. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Okay. David Glasser of Airshow Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Make sure you check out David's website. Go to airshowmastering.com and uh, have a look. And uh, we're out of time. So we got to say goodbye. So thanks to everybody. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks to, of course, Cliff Truesdale. And uh, thanks to Chuck Smith and uh, Cole Williams. And uh, thanks to our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Lawton Audio. And thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming back. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 